0: Part of the community. All right, I'm going to invite Jen Zorb, who's going to come up and read our scripture for the morning.
1: Good morning. The reading is from John 2 1 through 12. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants knew who had drawn the water. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone, bring, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. Let's pray. God, it is a privilege to gather together. Thank you for calling us to do this journey in community. Um, Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to model love, compassion, empathy, and to show us a little bit of who you are. Today, I pray that you would meet us in this space, that you would open our eyes and our ears so that we could learn about who you are. Um, God, we pray that we would become more like you, and we know that we need your help to do that, and we need each other. Um, Meet us in our doubts, in our confusion, in our pain, in our joy, in our celebration. Meet us right here where we are, and show us. Show us who you are. Um, Show us your love for us and teach us to become like you. Amen.
0: Jen, you did a very nice job, but you need to do it again because you didn't go up to the pulpit. It's like a rite of passage. So just, okay, we'll let you slide this time. Um, (laughs) All right, good morning. You met Emily if you are here at the beginning of the service. Emily is my wife, and she read Scripture and prayed this morning. Uh, I'm not going to include family members every single time. If this is your first time, it's not like that. Emily just happens to be someone who loves Jesus and is my wife and is part of this church. Um, Emily and I have been together since uh, my sophomore year of high school, uh, so four years ago. And... Uh, <laughs> No, it was a little bit longer than that. This is 16 years that we've been together, which is kind of amazing. And I don't remember when it happened, but at one point I was over at Emily's parents' house and they got out home videos. We were watching home videos of young Emily. And uh, there was one video of Emily's birthday party when she was five years old. And they played Hot Potato. So my mother-in-law, Kay Skaggs, went to the piano and she played the music and the kids were passing the thing around. And Emily was the first out (laughs) at her party. There's great footage of Emily breaking down and weeping in the middle of her party. And she ran out. And in the end, Haven Hoffman won. And Haven Hoffman was not supposed to win Hot Potato because it's Emily's birthday party. She got upstaged at her own thing. And uh, you may remember this, but I was, uh, we had a buddy in college who was getting ready for his wedding, and he had a friend whose girlfriend insisted on wearing white to my buddy's wedding. Like, everyone knew she was really excited about this dress, and she was going to wear white to the wedding. And the bride was like, not trying to be rude, but like, would you pretty please not wear that dress? Because there's only one person who's supposed to be wearing a white dress at the wedding. And she insisted on it. that she wore white to the wedding. <laughs> really? Um, it's another one of these stories. That you got you get upstaged at your own thing. It's like, come on, man, or lady. <laughs> and just a word of advice. This is not related to the sermon. Don't be that guy. <laughs> Don't be that lady who does that thing. I bring this up to say, it makes us think of how this story could have gone. The text that Jen just read of Jesus in Cana of Galilee, the story could have been something a little bit more like this. And so, I want you to do some use your imagination a little bit, and I want you to pretend that this is this is your wedding. Okay, Cana is a small town. If you go Google Cana. Uh, There's debate about where it is or which town it is or whether there are a couple Canas. It's like Springfield. Well, which Springfield? It's not not really on the map. It's a small town. So I want you to imagine that this is your wedding and this is in a a small town wedding. And you're really excited to get hitched and... Uh, your family's been doing tons of planning. You've, you've made all the preparations. You've got your guest list together, and the big day has finally come. and, and you're really excited and, and halfway through the meal, you get word that all of the wine is gone. Or maybe like people are halfway through the buffet line, and the caterers are coming out and they're like, "That's all we brought." Or, or you've served half the people wedding cake. And you like, man, we should have gone halvesies. We should have cut the pieces smaller because, oh, my gosh, this is so disappointing. How would you feel if that happened at your wedding? How would you feel? Someone tell me. Unhappy. Uh, yeah, seriously unhappy. What's another word? How would you feel if this is your wedding? This is like a seminal moment for your family and, ah, uh, embarrassed, unhappy, embarrassed. What else? Angry, that's where I would go. It'd feel like crying maybe, so angry you feel like crying. This is what could have happened. Now, what could have happened is, that, is, is they figure out the wine goes out. Jesus could have let the news go public. Like, he could, like, it could have been that he and his mom would not have intervened. And so everybody finds out that the wine has run out, and maybe they think the parents are cheapskates because they didn't get enough, or maybe a bunch of people came and, like, invited themselves to the wedding, what Jesus could have done if he really wanted to make a splash is he could have let the news hit first that the wine was out. And then Jesus steps into the spotlight. I've got it, you guys. This one's on me. And so he calls for the, the big old pitchers of water. And, they, you know, it holds a ton. Did you hear how much water these things hold? There's six of them that hold 20 to 30 gallons. He's like, I've got more than enough, and he rolls up his sleeves, watch this, and everyone's like oohing and awing as the water turns to wine, and then they taste it in front of everybody, and Jesus kicks off his ministry in a very public way, and everyone's got their eyes on him. Well, how are the bride and groom and their family feeling if it had gone like that? Like, well, on the one hand, I'm glad that Jesus kind of rescued us, but here we are in the corner eating cake by ourselves. Well, they're like carrying Jesus off on their shoulders, chanting his name. The story could have gone something a little bit like that. Um, but that's not how it went. And there's some great details in the story that I hope that, that you won't miss. The first thing you notice is that Jesus was invited to this wedding and he went. So he got the invitation in the mail. I don't know how it worked in the first century. Uh, I'm going to pretend that a squire delivered the invitation. That may be... Uh, poor historical reference, but Jesus was invited to this wedding, and he goes. His disciples go, his mom goes, and he went not planning to do a miracle. We don't get the sense that he's like got this up his sleeve. I don't think he like, he told the disciples, hey, go hide half the wine because I'm going to do something awesome. He went and just as a wedding guest, and he was okay being anonymous. Isn't that odd? Did you ever think about that? He was okay being just a face in the crowd at this wedding. Uh, and then his mom approaches him and says, hey, uh, they're out of wine. And I've always struggled with, with his response to his mom. It's like, woman, why do you involve me? And then his mom's like, do whatever he says, which is a very mom thing to do. <laughs> Ignore what you say. They'd passive aggressively kind of move things along. <laughs> Mary's a mom too. But, but I like, I was thinking about his response that he says, woman, why do you involve me? I wonder if, I wonder if what his response was really about was, we don't have to make this about me. This, I don't have to take the spotlight here. I don't need to shove out this couple from the spotlight. This is their deal. But he gets involved. And did you notice who knows about this miracle? His mom, because she forced him into it his disciples, and his servants, but the majority of people at the wedding had no idea that he had done this. And in the face of scarcity, when they had run out of the wine, Jesus had a very abundant solution. Now remember, they've drunk all the wine that was there, which means they've had a fair amount to drink, and at the end, when everyone's already had a fair amount to drink, he shows up with 180 gallons of wine. And I think, you know, if we want to be a community shaped by Jesus... (laughs) Maybe we shouldn't leave. In fact, would you open the doors? I've got a bottle of wine for everybody. (laughs) No. Um, But in the face of scarcity, Jesus shows up with this very abundant solution, but no one knows what a cool thing it is. They just think, this family did some great planning. Jesus is the one who deserves the honor, but who gets the credit in the story? The master of the banquet goes to the groom and says, man, at most weddings, they bring out the cheapo stuff at last, but you brought the best way to go. And at a time when this family could have been deeply embarrassed, oh, picture, I mean, at your wedding or at a party of yours and something like this went so poorly, you'd be humiliated. You would always remember what should have been a great event with an asterisk on it. It's like, oh. But Jesus quietly preserved the dignity of this family, and he honored them in the process. They got the credit for his thing. And John, who who wrote this story down, calls this the first sign through which Jesus revealed his glory. It's it's a building block in the case that John is making for the way that we're thinking about Jesus. It's a sign. And and I'm going to talk about the miracle, and I'm going to talk about the symbolism but I want to say that as, as I studied here, I found myself just admiring Jesus. How respectable. If you saw someone who, who came in and secretly preserved the dignity of this family and didn't need the spotlight or take credit, what would you think about that person? They're all right. That person's got money in the bank with me. They've got credibility with me. The person who can do that without needing to, like, do a tax write-off or, or tweet out, hey, just saved the day at the wedding, this is a person who's trustworthy. This is the person who's honorable. This is a person of deep character. This is a person who's humble. Last week, we read this invitation of Jesus from Matthew 11. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I'm humble and I'm gentle in spirit. Well, here he is. He's being humble and gentle in spirit. He's not forcing himself into the spotlight. He's hiding in the shadows and honoring this couple whose name we don't know. And I, it occurred to me for the first time last night that maybe we don't know their names so they won't be embarrassed. That they were, you know, even though Jesus turned it into a beautiful thing, we don't have to go down as the family who didn't plan well. It's beautiful. Jesus is gentle, Jesus is a man I can get behind. And 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 I think that's important. As we've been, uh, for the, if you've been here the last three weeks, or maybe you've listened to the messages, we're we're talking, we're really concentrating on Jesus, because the scriptures say to see Jesus is to see God. John chapter one uh, describes Jesus as the Word. Uh, another pastor, Brian Zahn, said Jesus is what God has to say. Everything that God wants us to know about God's self, we see in the person of Jesus. Jesus is a word that speaks. And then last week we see this interaction between Jesus and some of his early disciples where they start to follow him and he says, what do you want? What are you seeking? He respects them enough to ask this question and to invite them into a journey of discipleship. We've been saying we need to get a hard look at Jesus because if we look at Jesus, we see what God is like. And in God, we see, we see here in Jesus in this text a God who's gentle a God who dignifies, a God who honors, a God who doesn't hog the spotlight. And so when we think about God, is this the kind of God that we think of? Is this the kind of God in Jesus that politicians are making reference to when they say, I believe in God or you know, faith and family? Is this the kind of God that you think of when you're playing back your day in your mind and shaming yourself for how things have gone or wondering what God thinks of you? And the fact that it's not for probably all of us, that in our, in our default setting, we don't go to this kind of picture of God, says that we need a reset. We need a hard reset in our spiritual operating system, and we need many of us to start over. And so that's why in the first season of our life together as a church called Cornerstone, we're, we're taking a hard look at Jesus. We're going to be in John's gospel until two or three weeks after Easter for a while. But it's because we want to immerse ourselves in the story of Jesus. If you want to learn a foreign language, the fastest way to do it is go live in a community that speaks that language. We want to be a community that speaks the language of Jesus. Learn to immerse ourselves in the words and the heart of Jesus and then build our life together around the person of Jesus. And we acknowledge that there's a fundamental reality that all of us are building our lives around something. It could be acquiring wealth, it could be self-actualization at some level, it could be having children. We're all building our lives around something, but we want to build our lives around the person of Jesus Christ together, which is why, Susan, let's, let's put that up, which is why we've expressed our heart in this way. Uh, let's, let's read this together. Would you read this phrase with me? We want to be a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things a community together that's learning the way of Jesus. And if a community of people were living in the way that Jesus is in this story, that's a community that renews. That's a community that restores. That's a community where people can experience healing. And I loved, if you were here last week, hearing Jason's story about how God has begun to renew something that was dead in him. But in John's gospel here, John is a really good writer. And for those of you who are artistic or like creative writing, you'll like John because he's hidden these Easter eggs all throughout the gospel, these little hints, these little morsels that he wants you to just chew on and think on. And and the one phrase that stood out to me as I as I thought about this throughout the week is the acknowledgement, they have no more wine. So the, uh, Jesus' mom comes to him and he says, at the party here, they have no more wine wine. Now, think about the role of wine at a wedding or what wine represents. It's, it's the celebration. It's, it's the joy. It's, sometimes you get a, a glass of wine in you and you smile a little bigger. Um, it's, it's the life of the party in some ways. And you think about this metaphorically, that they have no more wine. Uh, party, party's over. The fun is gone. But you think about it as the party of just life, that the wine's gone, the fun's run out, and maybe you have hit that place where you had a vision of your life. Uh, It was beautiful. You're, you're, You're leaning into all your gifts. You have relationships that are meaningful, but you've hit a point where you feel like we've run out of wine. My cup's empty. Or maybe you feel like things have just turned sour. This isn't fun anymore. And we're all there at one place or another in our lives where we feel like we've, we've come to the end of our resources, and this is not the life that I wanted. Maybe you came in this morning feeling like that. A lot of times people come to church because they're at those kind of crossroads where they're like, something has to change. And There's this acknowledgement to Jesus they've, they've run out of wine. The cup is empty. The wine's gone sour. And and I think about using the lens of our imagination. What Jesus does here, he has this creative and imaginative, abundant solution. Uh, What are the vessels for the wine? What what are they? What does he use to make the wine in? Big things, Ben. Very helpful. Big things. Yeah, it's these gigantic stone jars that were used for ceremonial cleansing. And if you go to the Old Testament, you see instructions about the usage of these. But in the first century, in Jesus' time, uh, the Pharisees in particular had way expanded the rules for what requires ceremonial cleansing. And they had, they had added a lot of rules. They got onto Jesus' case for breaking these rules that they invented about when and when, and where, and how you need to be ceremonially cleansed. And Jesus, who may have been like messing with the Pharisees here, and I like to think that, calls for those jars, those jars that, that are associated with legalism and like Bible thumping and shame for a lot of people. Oh, I've got to go scrub up again. He takes those jars about cleaning yourself up, about do better, do better, do better. You keep screwing up. Those jars are the ones that he uses, and he repurposes into a vessel to hold 180 gallons of wine, making the party awesome from then on. It's not on accident. It's not just because there weren't buckets handy or wine glasses handy. He took these things that were associated with legalism and with doing better and a visual reminder of how you keep messing things up, and he turned those and he he renewed their purpose and made them into a, a, a source of celebration, into something awesome. And my prayer is that God would do the same thing in this community, Your blood pressure may be up sitting in a pew or sitting in this room, or you may associate church with having a guilty conscience, or you may associate uh, church with moralisms or, you know, mom and dad calling on you or that pastor from your upbringing calling you to guilt you. into. Well, you really should be. He's not in church. He really should be in church. You may associate what's going on here with guilt trips and with with people who think you're not good enough. And a reminder, just like those ceremonial jars, you could do a little bit better. If it were really important to you, you would do a little bit better. And our prayer is that God would take this, what for many of us is tied to moralism and guilt trips and bless it and transform it into something that's so much better, a community of transformation community of celebration where like Jesus is here and cool things are happening. It's like the life is back and the party, our cup is full. This is, oh my gosh, you couldn't keep me from being a part of this community and giving my life to it for as long as I live. And that's the Prayer. In the presence of Jesus, this would be something so much more than a group of us sitting in rows, listening to a person talk, thumping the Bible of us, but we would be a confident Jesus is among us. He's transforming something into something so much more beautiful than plain water or plain moralism. It's turned into something great and into something beautiful. Emily read this psalm at the beginning, taste and see that God's good. Come see the evidence for yourself that God's good. I've said from the beginning, um, I've never been a senior pastor before. I've never done a church plant before. I have no idea how to do the pretty words that we're saying we want to do as a church. I don't know how to do that. That's why we've said, uh, you know, since a group of us were meeting in our living room that, that what we must do is not have clever marketing is not have really compelling social media, although that's helpful. It's not for me to be like the shiniest preacher in the world. If that's your expectation, you are going to be disappointed. That's not where we need to put our first energies. Jesus said, and this is the words that I opened with, Jesus said in John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear fruit. And the wine comes from the vine. And if I were a charismatic preacher, I would really, I would land on that one for a while and Cava would get the organ going. The wine is in the vine. <laughs> I could do a better impersonation. I'll do that next time. But if it's true, if you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear fruit. If it's in our connection to Jesus, the life of the party comes back, the glass is filled, then we should give the rest of our lives together to being connected to Jesus. But it starts not with clever marketing, not with, not with you know, great sermons or impressive whatever. It's tied to seeing Jesus. And in seeing Jesus, we see what God is like. So three things I want to say that we see in Jesus. And by extension, three things we learn about God. First thing I want to point out is that Jesus is glad to be invited into the ordinary. He's fine being invited to a wedding where he doesn't have a speaking role. Jesus is fine going to your soccer match. Jesus is, is delighted to go into the boardroom with you. Jesus would be delighted to have dinner with your family at your house. Jesus would be delighted to sit across the table from you sipping a glass of wine. Jesus would be delighted to, to sit with you in your room at three o'clock in the morning when you're wondering why you exist. Jesus is delighted. To be with you in ordinary regular life. And he, he doesn't even have to talk. He's he's willing to show up and not have a speaking role. He loves you. He cares about you. He wants to be with you. And not just in the religious times. He cares about you. He's glad to be invited into the ordinary second thing that we see in Jesus here is that Jesus is quick to protect the dignity of others. I love this about him. That he doesn't, need, he doesn't need the spotlight here. He is delighted for the groom's family to get the credit. The bride and groom's families to get the credit for having the best wine at the end. He's quick to protect their dignity. And we see this all through Scripture. When Adam and Eve uh, rebel against God... He's quick and they realize they're naked and they're ashamed. He's quick to provide skins to cover them. He could have been like, well, I told you, which is what I do as a parent sometimes. If you hadn't done this, he's quick to provide skins. He's quick to protect their dignity, which is what he wants to do for you, which is why he wants us not to live in self-destructive ways. He doesn't want to cost us our dignity. He's quick to protect our dignity and to make us new. And the third thing we see in Jesus here which is really miraculous is he changes the nature of a thing. So these these stone jars are full to the brim with water, a simple thing, we need water, but simple. And he miraculously transforms their nature from something simple and natural to something cultivated. It takes a lot of work to produce good wine, and he produced the best wine. He changed the nature of a thing from simple and natural to something great and delicious, something amazing. Jesus can change the nature of a thing. And quite frankly, we're all banking on that. As Todd said, many of us feel like we're limping to the finish line. We're hoping to God that it's true that Jesus can change the nature of a thing, even our nature. And that's what we believe is true. By the operation of the Holy Spirit, this gift that God gives us, that He changes our nature to conform us to being more like Jesus. And isn't that what we want? But I think it starts with, with one of the realities that we talked about last week that, and it's true this week, that He respects our dignity. He respects our choice. He asks the disciples, what do you want? And in this story, He comes at an invitation and I think the same invitation is, is extended to all of us, or the responsibility is extended to all of us. Will you invite the Lord Jesus into the ordinariness of your life? Will you invite the Lord Jesus to be your dignity, to be your sanity? Will you invite the Lord Jesus to change your very nature, to make you new? Think about the power of that word renewal. Don't you wish you could start over? that's the good news of the gospel, that in Jesus Christ, God is making all things new, and you can be made new. And that's what we're banking our life on. That's, what we're, that's why we started this community. God is always doing a work of renewal. I need it to happen in me. You've made, maybe you don't realize, I don't fully realize how desperately I need it to happen in me, but that's what Jesus wants to do, to join us in the ordinariness of our life, to come alongside us and to make all things new within each and every one of us.